Well, it's good to see everybody here today. How you doing? You doing good? Good. And uh, we are one church gathering right now in multiple locations around our city. So I want to say hello to each and every one of our campuses, regardless of wherever you're joining us from. I know we have a number of people maybe hosting watch parties around the country. So if you're watching online, so good to have you for week number three of this series of messages that we've been in called Rumble Strip. And we've all probably had that experience before where maybe we're on a long road trip. Uh, maybe we're pulling an all-nighter trying to get to Florida on spring break. Uh, maybe it's we take our eyes off the road for maybe just a moment uh, on our daily commute, and that's when we feel the sound and, and hear the vibration of a rumble strip. And basically, if, you, if you've missed uh, the first two weeks of this series, the, the big idea is that there are these rumble strips uh, along the side of the road. They're, they're grooves in the road that actually are designed to keep us on the road. And we've said that rumble strips do three big things. They, they, they wake you up, alerting you to danger. Uh, they are still well inside the safety zone. That's important to remember. Um, if they were all the way to the edge of the pavement, then it wouldn't give you a whole lot of time to, to make a course correction. And then number three, they assist you and me in arriving safely at our destination. And so what we've been saying each week is that just as we need rumble strips along the side of the road... Uh, we need a few in life as well, and God has given us some of these rumble strips. Um, they are found in the principles in His Word as well as the promptings of His Spirit, the principles and the promptings, and th they assist you and me in helping us to get from, from where we are uh, to where we want to be. Now, here on week number three, I, I want to give us maybe another definition so we can kind of see another angle of this, and I might say it this way, that, that rumble strips are a standard of behavior that can become a matter of conscience. And so what, what that means is that when we hit the rumble strip, it lights up our conscience, making us aware of something. I've heard from a number of you uh, since we've started this series. Uh, direct messages, emails, conversations in the hallway, just uh, recognizing that maybe there were a few rumble strips in your life that, that you ignored Maybe that you wish that you would have paid attention to. Some of you have come up to me in tears and said, I, I didn't really fully know how to say it, but as I am kind of going through this series, I'm recognizing that there's some rumble strips kind of going off in my life right now. And they are there for our own good to keep us from swerving off the road, over the embankment, hurting ourselves and the people that we love. Now, with that said, I, I want us to, to be really careful that we don't, confuse the rumble strips for like just another set of religious rules. I think that so easily we can do that. I think that when it comes to, to what we would call um, matters or issues of conscience, that um, sometimes this can turn into a really um, destructive thing when our matters of conscience we sort of impose upon to other people. And Paul actually goes into great length uh, discussing that in his letter to the Corinthians, and when that happens, um, it can distract us as well as other people who need to experience the power and the grace of God from really experiencing it. It kind of reminds me of uh, the words of that great theologian, Homer Simpson, who one time when he was asked, you know, what religion are you? And he said, uh, you know, uh, the one with all the well-meaning rules that don't work in real life. Uh, Christianity. 
few nervous laughters in the room. Some of you are like, can we laugh at that? Is this a setup? I don't know, man. Some of you, maybe you agree with that statement. Maybe this is kind of articulating what you feel. And you're sort of like, I, I, I've just sort of, what I kind of thought this was, was a, a bunch of uh, religious rules or moral standards. Maybe you've sort of like, I don't know, you kind of felt like maybe this is God's playing a giant game of Simon Says with us. Remember that game in grade school? And it's as if God's saying, Simon Says, believe in me. Simon Says, go to church. Simon Says, you better read your Bible. Go ahead and get that tattoo. Ah, Simon didn't say, all right, and, and we're just sort of like, we feel like we're maybe being set up, or that God's trying to catch us in something, or maybe you have had someone who called themselves a Christian, and they sort of used the religious rules against you, kind of made you feel inferior, or inadequate, or less than, and they sort of kind of gave you that condescending look, you know the one, where it just sort of makes you feel as, as if you're being held to a standard, which, by the way, you never really remember agreeing to. And so for many of you, maybe if that was your experience with religion, you, it explains why you walked away. And you just said, I'm not religious. I don't, maybe you walked away from the church. Maybe you don't talk to God much anymore. If, that's, if that explains maybe you in any way, shape, or form, can I, for starters, I'm really glad that you're here or listening to this message, and I actually don't blame you. Like, if that's what I thought that God was offering, then, then I would walk away too. And, and what, what might surprise you even more than me saying that is that I think that Jesus would agree with you as well. Because Jesus was fed up with religion and man-made rules that put distance between people and God. In fact, one time in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said these words. He said, hey, listen... I've not come to do away with the law, so, so don't misunderstand. He's, we talked about this on week one. The, the law, the 613 laws that are found in the Old Testament, he goes, hey, I've not come to do away with that. Actually, the law is not a bad thing. The law is actually a really good thing. Two big problems with the law. There isn't anybody that can live up to all 613 of them. And then number two, when you try to use the law to make yourself look better than you really are and to make other people feel bad about themselves. Jesus is like, man, I'm so out on that. And so he says, I've come not to do away with it, but here's the word that he uses. He said, I've come to fulfill it. And that's a really good thing. In other words, Jesus says, hey, you don't, act, you don't have to be distracted trying to follow every nuance of the law. What I want you to do is look at me. What I want you to do is invite me into your life. Here's another way of saying it. Jesus is like, here's the ball, I'll block for you. And let me run right through that defensive line. And last week, if you were here, I said in John chapter 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life to the fullest, which means he is for you, which means that he wants you to experience joy and freedom. Come on, if you're going to clap, commit, all right? No PGA golf claps in here. No, I want you, here's another way of saying it. The rumble strips are here not to limit our lives, but to maximize the lives that we've been given. And so much of the time we don't see it because there's so many things distracting us away from it. Even those of us within the church, sometimes especially those within the church, is that we, oftentimes, I know this has been true for me, is that I came to Jesus, got saved by grace through faith, and then I start going back and trying to follow the rules. And it distracts me away from the power and the healing that God wants to bring into 
my life. Now listen, following Jesus isn't always easy, but it should never be complicated. And sometimes we make it more complicated than it needs to be. I don't think that I I need to convince you that driving behind the wheel of a car is really dangerous when you're distracted. I think that we would all agree with that. Uh, The National Safety Council actually provided a list of the top uh, things that are distracting us as we drive. Uh, Most of these are not going to be surprising to you. Uh, One of the ones they list is just eating and driving. All right, so no more Taco Bell, kids. All right. Uh, Another one that they mention is just music. You know, we crank up the playlist and we just sort of get lost in the song and we stop paying attention to what we're doing. Another is cell phones, you know, texting and driving. Uh, Another is just uh, other passengers in the car, you know, just talking to us, distracting us. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever done this. You slow down to check out an accident and then you get in one. (laughs) Um, Maybe dozing off behind the wheel is another one. Uh, uh, and then one of the last ones that they list is putting on makeup, all right? So ladies, all right, you look good, all right? You look good, but you're, you're risking our lives, okay? So, uh, and they go on to say there's 1.6 million accidents each year. There's 390,000 injuries that occur each year from texting and driving. I don't think, I, I don't think that's a surprise to any of us. But oftentimes, what we know to be true behind the wheel of a car, we often fail to see in our spiritual lives. And the, the, what's at stake is much higher. And many of us are distracted away from what Jesus has truly called us to. And so uh, I want us to look at a little-known story tucked away in our Old Testaments out of 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, uh, would you go ahead and, and turn there? If, if you don't, uh, the verses that we'll walk through, I'll put on the monitor beside me. Um, But I want to look at this story of an individual in particular that uh, really needed to experience the power and the healing that only God could provide, but he was distracted away from it. Now, there are two primary um, characters in this story that I want you to be familiar with before we look at the passage. The first is a guy named Elisha, and Elisha was a prophet in the nation of Israel. Now, a prophet was just simply a person who spoke to people on behalf of God. The second character in the story that you need to be familiar with is a guy by the name of Naaman. And Naaman was a general in the enemy army, uh, the nation of Aram. And Naaman was this um, guy's kind of a guy. Right? He was described as a mighty warrior, um, Ladies wanted to be with him. Guys wanted to be him. All right. I mean, he's just a stud. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how much in common I have with Naaman. I mean, it's just like my doppelganger. Like I, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. All right. Uh, I'm such a big dork. My wife is somewhere rolling her eyes. I can feel it. All right. Uh, so here you've got these, these two guys. Naaman is this sort of like intimidating figure and One day he gets diagnosed with a terminal disease. Um, He gets diagnosed with leprosy. Now, leprosy was a disease that started in your skin and it worked its way uh, into your body, attacking your vital organs. There was no known cure. Um, Leprosy uh, was not only a, a physical scare, but it was a social and relational death sentence, meaning that when you got it, you didn't want to tell anybody that you had it because as soon as they found out you had it then they would they would isolate themselves from you and it was terrifying and so I want to pick this up in verse 2 it says at this time 
Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. That's where Elisha is. And among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. And one day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. That that would be Elisha. He would heal him of his leprosy. Now, the first thing that I, I want you to see here is that you've got this young girl from Israel who has been kidnapped. She's been taken captive by Naaman's army, and she gets placed in Naaman's house as a, as, as a captive, as a, as a slave. And here she is, being held against her will. She hears the dinner conversation. She knows that he has leprosy, and she speaks up, and she says, I know where he can get some help and some hope. It's pretty amazing. I mean, we don't know anything about this girl. We don't even know her name. Now, if I'm in her situation and I'm being held captive against my will and the people that are holding me captive, I find out that they have a terminal disease. I don't know. Maybe this is just me. I'm not saying a word. Maybe this is reflective of my heart, but I'm just guessing that some of you would uh, feel the same way I would. And I would just say, oh, you have leprosy. Mm." Too bad. I hope you die a slow, painful, miserable death. (laughs) But she doesn't. She speaks up and she says, I know where you can get some help. I know where you can get some hope. And so in verse 4, Naaman goes to his boss, the king of Aram, and he explains the situation. He says, I don't want to alarm you, but I've got leprosy. I haven't told anybody yet. And I've heard that there's somebody uh, in Israel that can actually uh, heal me of this. And the king of Aram says, man, not only will I give you time off work, but I will send a text message to the king of Israel. We met each other one time at the last king's convention in Vegas. Like, I know who he is, all right? And I want you to get right in, and I want you to get the help that you need. And so, verse 5, Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. He knows this is going to be very expensive because this is out of network. All right? (laughs) Don't tell me the Bible's boring. Verse 6, the letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Now, the king of Israel at this time was a guy by the name of Joram. And Joram, like most of the kings in Israel's history, was paranoid and self-absorbed, which is a bad combination for any leader to have. And so when he receives this letter, he thinks it's a setup. He thinks that this is a political ambush, that um, they're actually trying to use this to pick a fight with him. Because what will happen is if If uh, Naaman comes and doesn't get what he wants, then they'll say, this is a reason for us to invade. So verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, Am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to uh, heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha... The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay. He sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? In other words, stop reading fake news. Get off of Facebook, all right? 
He says, send Naaman to me and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. Now, if you don't know anything at all about Elisha, here's all you really need to know. The whole purpose of Elisha's life was to shine a big, giant spotlight on God. The whole purpose of his life was to say, let me remove the distractions. Let me eliminate the barriers. I don't care if you're an insider or an outsider. I don't care if you're from the nation of Israel or if you're a general in the enemy army of Aram. Let me just shine a big spotlight on God. And can I just say that that's the heartbeat of our church as well? And that when you come to serve and that when you come to worship, that that should be the focus of all of our efforts is to just shine a great big spotlight on God. And I thought that we'd get some more clap behind that. That's, uh, that's good, all right? Hey, so far, I don't know about the other campuses, so far 930 is putting you all to shame. Just, just saying, all right? But it's not a competition. All right, so, so Naaman says that he goes with his horses and his chariots. And he waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. Now you got to understand, Naaman's a big deal. Naaman is used to people making a big deal out of him when he shows up. Like autographs, selfies, all the things. And he shows up to Elisha's pad, I don't know, just in like a a whole bunch of Range Rovers or something. They got the whole crew. And they pull up and Elisha's assistant runs in and says, hey, Naaman's here. And I love this. Elisha goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, Go out and tell him to take a swim in the Jordan River. And I just love the fact that Elisha doesn't go out to meet him. I I just, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know. I, I envision that he was shaving. Right? I just envisioned that he was standing there in his towel, shaving casually, drinking his coffee, and he says, yeah, I don't have time to go out and meet this guy who's a big deal. And as you might imagine, Naaman gets ticked off. Look at verse 11. Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy, I don't know, all hocus-pocus style. And call upon the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farfar better than the rivers of Israel? In other words, he's talking about the the rivers that he has back home. He's like, they're far superior than what we have here. Why shouldn't I go wash in them and be healed? And so Naaman turned and went away in a rage. In other words, he's going, I've come all this way. And you didn't even come out to say hello to me. And now you're telling me to go down to an inferior river and go swimming? Like, this is ridiculous. It's a joke. Now, here's the thing that Naaman couldn't have possibly seen or understood at the moment. Is that in Israel, the the Jordan River had a really special place in their history. Maybe some of you uh, might remember this from your Old Testament history. Is that... When the Israelites escaped captivity in Egypt, it was the Jordan River that they crossed to go into the Promised Land. And it was this symbol that recognized God had delivered them. He had given them some freedom, and now it was a new beginning. The Jordan River would be the place where many, many years later, John the Baptist would baptize thousands of people. Jesus himself would be baptized in this river. 
But Naaman couldn't have possibly seen this. He couldn't have possibly understood it. But Naaman did have one thing right. It was just a river. There was nothing especially significant or special about this river. There was, no, there was no magical qualities in this river that would have healed him of his leprosy. Just, just a normal river. It's kind of like baptism. And one of the things that God asks us to do after we trust him with our lives is to be baptized. And I know for many of you that's maybe kind of a confusing thing or it's a frustrating thing, or a discouraging thing, something that you don't necessarily want to do, and you're like, well, what's the big deal about it? I want you to know there's nothing in the waters of the baptistry that save you. Like, we don't, we don't, you know, I know that's a big disappointment to some of you. Some of you are like, I thought you piped that in directly from the Holy Land. Some of you are like, I thought there was like some Holy Spirit Epsom salts, you know, in the baptistry, but there's nothing special in that water. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's actually, it's actually pretty gross. Like if you only knew. <laughs> if you only knew. Like especially when we do spontaneous baptist, baptisms. Like I've been in there. After like 30 people or so, like it starts to uh, feel kind of funky. All right. And uh, like I, I'll like pull my hands up and like I've got hair intertwined through my fingers. There's like a nice little layer of some kind of scum on the top it's just like body oils and makeups I don't know it's like and now you're like I am definitely not being baptized now it's like not happening there's nothing special in the water so what's the big deal here's what's the big deal in baptism your humility and obedience meets Jesus there and something powerful happens And the same thing is going to happen to Naaman. It's just a river. And Elisha is really sort of like wondering, will you have the humility and the obedience to do something you don't understand? To do something that's maybe confusing to you. And Naaman is upset. He's pacing around, mumbling under his breath. And that's when his men speak into his life. Look at verse 13. But his officers tried to reason with him, and they said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he simply says, Go, wash, and be cured. Man, there's a lot of wisdom in that. They're like, Bro, can you dial it down just a bit? This isn't that big of a deal. Why are you so angry? They're saying, Hey, listen, didn't you expect him to tell you to do something difficult, invasive, or painful? Like, didn't you expect him to say, like, hey, we need to put you under and we'll, we'll cut you open? Like, you probably would have done it. Like, if he would have said, here, drink this green stuff, you probably would have done it. All he's telling you to do, man, is go for a swim. Like, what, what's the harm in that? Let's go down. Let's have a swim. Let's see what happens. And then we'll go home. Aren't you grateful for people like that in your life? I hope you got some people like that in your life. People that will talk you down off the ledge. People that will speak into your life when your emotions get the best of you and their words clear your head and reset your heart. And by the way, can I just say that last week we, we, we set a record, I believe, in the history of our church. We had over 200 of you go to Growth Track and say you wanted to be in a group. And I just want to say, man, way to go. That's incredible. Over 200 of you said, I don't want to do this alone. I need people speaking into my life. Can I just say, way to go, and I hope you follow through. 
Like I know that maybe you've slept since then. Maybe something's happened to you this last week. Follow through on it. Continue to do what you said you were going to do. Well, Naaman, to his credit, he, 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 he calms down and he listens. And he goes down to the Jordan River. He doesn't understand at all what he's doing. Verse 14. Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times. As the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child. And he was healed. Now, some of you might be wondering, like, what's the big deal with, like, seven times? Like, that seems like a little bit of overkill. Like, why seven times? Was it that he dips, you know, six times and he still had a leprosy and then he goes down the seventh time and then he's, he's healed? Like, how, how does that all work? Or did it fade a little bit over time? Like, like I, I, don't, I don't know. But the number in the Bible that represents completion or perfection, many of you know this, is, is seven but I think there's even another principle that we could sort of bag up and take home with us today and apply to our lives. And it's just simply this, that many, it's, it's a principle that many of us are learning, that repetition is what healing requires. And what I mean by that is that for many of us, we're looking for quick fixes, easy solutions, one and done. And God isn't trying to bail you out of a scenario. God wants to change your heart. God wants to heal you. And there have been so many times when I really don't want, like, uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you know, transformational God to kind of uh, do heart surgery. What I really want is vending machine God. Like, I told you what I wanted. Just give it to me, all right? And then when God doesn't give you what you asked for that he said he would never give you, then we say, well, I don't have any use for you. See, see what seven represents here is, man, don't give up. Like for many of you, like you need to, you need to continue to, to show up. You need to continue to go to your group. You need to continue to have that conversation. You need to continue to be forgiving. You need to continue to humble yourself and surrender yourself. Man, just lean in over and over and over again and see what God would do. Well, look at what it says in verse 15. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find Elisha, the man of God. And they stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. I love this. Elisha is saying, Hey, listen, I'd, I don't want any compensation. I don't want any money for, for what I did. I can't take any credit for what happened to you because I didn't do anything. Do I, I need to remind you, I didn't even come out to say hi. And actually, there's a reason why I didn't. It's because I didn't want you to be confused or distracted as to where the power came from. Like, the power didn't come from me. <laughs> like, the power came from God, and I wanted you to see that. I wanted you to know that it was the power of the living God that met you in your obedience, Naaman. I wanted you to know that when you didn't understand it, when you were confused by it, when you were frustrated with it, when you almost talked yourself out of it, God showed up. Even though you went reluctantly down to the river. Man, Naaman, to your credit, you did it. I know that sounds crazy. Jordan River seven times? Like, I was half joking. You actually did it. Like, you humbled yourself, you went down there, and your humility and obedience, that's when you met God there. And you, you know what? There's a word for it. It's called faith. And God showed up in the midst of your surrender, in the midst of your need, and he, he healed you. 
I mean, God's grace is free. He just loves you, man. He wants you to be healed. It's an incredible story, and it doesn't get a lot of airplay. In fact, for many of you, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. I know for me, like, it had been years since I'd reviewed it. I had to walk my way back through it. Did you know that Jesus actually references this story in his teaching in Luke chapter 4? The setting is Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he references this story, and it just about got him killed. The people wanted to throw him off the side of a cliff. Now, uh, as someone who communicates for a living, can I just tell you that if your response after I get done is, let's kill him, I don't know, maybe I just need to rethink this whole career path. All right, that's what I need to do. And, but that's what happened to Jesus, and all he did was he referenced the story we just walked through. Here's what he said. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says this to the people in the synagogue. Many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but... The only one, the only one, healed was Naaman, a Syrian. And that's actually what triggered the people's anger, and they wanted to throw him off the side of a cliff. Now, what's the big deal with what Jesus just said here? Here's the big deal. Here's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, hey, listen, Naaman wasn't the only one who had leprosy back then. A whole bunch of people had leprosy. Uh, people who had home field advantage. People that didn't need to get time off work and a letter from their king because they had direct access to Elisha right there in their backyard. People that were considered uh, uh, the people of God. They, they, they had leprosy and they could have experienced the power and the healing of God, but for whatever reason, they didn't experience it. They didn't humble themselves. They, they, they didn't obey, but, but an outsider did. A Syrian by the name of Naaman. And Jesus was issuing a warning and they picked up on it. Jesus was saying, hey, there's no room for entitlement in the kingdom of God. Just because you think that you've got direct access to God because of, and then you fill in the blank. Because of the denomination you grew up in, because of your theology, because of your moral choices, because of your matters of conscience that you abide by but others don't seem to, because of the way that you vote, on and on we could go. Jesus says, hey, 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 be careful that after you come to God that you actually don't get distracted from the power of the gospel because Jesus just might show up and save the person you least expect. That's what he's saying. And as a church... May we never forget that because the minute that we forget it is the minute that we begin to just become another religious institution that slowly dies a long, painful death. Several weeks ago, uh, I got a, a letter uh, in the mail and uh, I, I, it was just this summer and, and I, I got into my office, I'm kind of working through, I'd been traveling and so I was opening up uh, some mail and some things that I'd received and I had this uh, handwritten letter um, from someone who had visited our church. And uh, so I began to read the letter, and the, 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 it started this way. Um, I visited your church this Sunday past. And I thought, did you just crawl out of a time machine from a different era? All right, it's just, it was kind of, the whole letter was kind of written in that kind of style. It was, it was unusual. And they wanted, very clearly, they wanted me to know that they were a Christian uh, that they'd been a believer for a long time, that they visited our church one Sunday over the summer, and they were unhappy about something. 
And um, I, it was on a Sunday that I wasn't here. I was actually traveling. Ryan Bramlett, our downtown campus pastor, was preaching that weekend, had done an incredible job. But they were upset, um, how should I say this, uh, with Ryan's uh, stylistic choices. In particular, uh, he had some rips in his jeans that particular morning. Apparently, he fell on the way in. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. All right. So, like, so, so Ryan, uh, they, they, were, they were upset about that. And they, they, the whole letter talking about the rips in his jeans, how it was an affront to the holiness of God, and how dare we, and I hold you accountable because you're the lead pastor, and on and on they went. Now, listen, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Uh, this individual had every right to express their opinion uh, about not liking Ryan's jeans. You have every right to express your opinion about the shirt that I'm wearing that you may not like it. You may not like my face. M many of you tell me that. All right, so it's just like you, you have the freedom. You have the freedom to do that. I'm not telling you that you don't have the freedom to say it. What disappointed me with the letter, especially somebody who made it very, very clear that they were a Christian, was that it, it was harsh and it was mean-spirited and they didn't say one thing about Ryan's message. And so I actually went back and listened to it. And that particular morning, Ryan did an incredible job pointing people to the hope that can be found in Jesus. The gospel was crystal clear in his teaching. And what... What, what discouraged me is they didn't reference that one time. Especially in the fact when uh, Scripture makes it very clear God, that man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. See, what we need to understand here is just simply this. Um, Jesus is on a search and rescue mission from people that are really, really far from God. There's a passage in Jude that says, snatch others from the fire. Meaning that I want to be close enough to the flames to smell like smoke. I don't want to retreat into my holy bubble and begin to just kind of cast, you know, uh, religious rule bombs into people's lives. But I want to get up close and compassionate with people because Jesus is on a search and rescue mission. May we never get distracted away from that. And so one time in the Gospel of John, Jesus walks up to a 38-year-old man who is a paralytic he had been paralyzed his whole life. He's laying beside this pool in Jerusalem that was known to have some medicinal qualities, thought that maybe it could heal him. And Jesus asks him this penetrating question. He says, do you want to get well? And can I just turn that question towards you today, whoever you are? Maybe it's somebody here trying to recover from the religious rules game. Maybe it's somebody here who just realized that I've actually become quite callous to people in this world who are far from God. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, I am far from God and I'm really wrestling with some stuff. Can I just very compassionately say, man, do you want to get well? What is it that you need healing from? Chances are it's not leprosy. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's something emotional. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe you feel stuck right now in your life. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe right now you're just tired of being a cynic. You want to get well? If so, the first place to begin, just like Naaman, is recognizing that you need to get well. There's something that's holding you back, and you got to surrender if you're going to get well. Several years ago, um, I had this um, cough that wouldn't go away. And, uh, you know, I didn't feel bad other than the cough, and the cough was more annoying than anything. And, and I kept saying to myself, it's not a big deal. Like, I'll get over it just a few more days. I'll keep popping these cough drops, and it'll, I'll, I'll, it'll be fine. But it wasn't fine. 
And, and people would come in and they would kind of, you know, I'd be hacking up along while we're talking. And they're like, you know, hey, bro, like, have you gone to the doctor? And I'm just like, I'm busy and they'll want money. And I, um, like, it'll be fine. And, uh, and like, this went on for like a week and two weeks, like three weeks of this. And finally, uh, one day, I'll never forget it, the lady, some of the ladies in the office, uh, they had an intervention. <laughs> and they walked into my office. It was very uh, solemn. They, they huddled up around me. They said, Aaron, we love you. You're going to the doctor. And there is a van outside that it's going to take you. <laughs> all right. On the way back, we'll go through Wendy's, get you a Frosty. Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> And I went to the doctor, and guess what? I had bronchitis, right? Ain't coming back from that one with holes, all right? <laughs> the first step to recognize I needed to be healed from something was to be honest about what I needed to be healed of. And Naaman wasn't going to heal himself, and you aren't either. And see, when you can surrender, and when your humility and obedience meet Jesus, man, there's incredible freedom, and the power of God will surge into and through your life. And so can I just leave you with this encouragement today for those of you that need some healing is man, don't give up. Don't give up. And some of you walked in here today hanging on by a thread. Some of you walked in here today not quite sure if you're going to follow through. Can I just say, man, don't give up. Don't give up. You might be reluctant. You might be confused. You might be frustrated. I get it. Man, I understand. Please don't give up. And here's the next thing. Just show up. Just show up. That's all God is asking you to do. You just show up. Now, how does that fit into the context of your life? Maybe for some of you, you need to start showing up in your marriage because you're not. Some of you need to start showing up in that relationship. Some of you need to start showing up in your spiritual life. You just need to show up. Maybe the the, the only thing you can do is just like, I'm just going to, I don't want to come to church today, but I'm just going to come. I'm just going to show up and I'm going to sit there in the seat and we just take a deep breath and surrender. And I bet you in your humility and obedience, God will meet you right where you're at. So let me encourage you with words that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He's talking about some of the things that his team went through in the province of Asia. And I just want to leave you with this passage right here. He says, we were crushed and and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result... We stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. He says, hey, all these problems, all these issues, all these hardships, what it taught us was to stop relying upon ourselves and start relying upon God. Because there is the power that is there to bring healing in your life, whatever that looks like for you. And so let's just take a moment and ask him to do that. Father, we come to you right now and I pray that regardless of who we are, regardless of where we've been, regardless of what we're struggling with, that right now today, that we would just simply uh, surrender. And maybe what we need to do as we're sitting there is maybe we just need to hold up our hands. Not high, just we just need to hold up our hands right in front of us, open-handed. This is the sign to say, God, I surrender. I'm, I'm coming empty-handed to you. I've been relying upon myself too much. I've been holding on to the ledge, thinking I'm walking by faith, but really I'm, I'm holding on to the ledge until 
until the footing seems secure, then I'll let go. And what you really are saying to us is just, just let go. Someone here today needs healing physically. I pray that you would give it to them. God, somebody here today needs healing emotionally or spiritually. God, I pray that you would bring the healing that only you can. And so help us to not give up, to just show up and allow you to do what only you can. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said.